The Tom Woods Show, episode 1083. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, there are a lot of ways to start a side hustle online, and I give the step-by-step details of five of them in my free ebook on the subject, which you can find at pathstoincome.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. Another great episode for you today with Professor Jared Casey, who is Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at University College Dublin. He also teaches at mylibertyclassroom.com. He's very prolific. His most recent work is astonishing in its scope, its breadth, and its depth. It's called Freedom's Progress? A History of Political Thought. Absolutely amazing. We've done a number of episodes on different sections and chapters, and today we're going to talk about the period surrounding the English Civil War, because a lot of important ideas came out of that period. So I'm very glad to welcome him back to the show. Thanks so much, Professor Casey. Welcome back. Thank you very much, Tom. Good to be back. So we've chosen another period to talk about in terms of the history of political thought. We want to talk about the English Civil War and more broadly the period from about 1640 to 1660. And it turns out that this is a period maybe overlooked by a lot of libertarians, in which a lot of the ideas that we stand for today are more and more in evidence and are beginning to develop. So I think I I was going to ask you, why are we focusing on this period? I think I already gave the answer. So let's, let's go from there, and let's start with a little bit of a discussion of a group known as the Levelers. I made reference to the Levelers with Gary Chartier a couple of weeks ago because he's got a new collection out about libertarian class theory, and he has a selection from Richard Overton there. And the idea, more or less running through the book, is that class theory makes sense really when you think in terms of the state and the state's role in basically creating artificial antagonisms. So that's that's very interesting. But anyway, tell us about exactly who the Levelers were. Well, I, to, to answer that question, you really have to go back just a little bit, and you have to remind yourself that Parliament in the 17th century wasn't anything like it is today in the UK or in Ireland or Congresses in the United States. It wasn't a lawmaking body primarily. It was a, a means by which the king could levy his taxes. And instead of asking everybody in the country to make a contribution, he asked people to send representatives so that he could ask them to make a decision on behalf of everybody else. So Parliament was effectively a body by which and through which the king collected taxes. Of course, when they were asked for for the money, they often asked for something in return. Um, And therefore, you had, as Parliament sort of developed, it was called, of course, remember, as the king's pleasure and could be dismissed at the king's pleasure. But they became progressively more self-assertive. And so in the 17th century, the tensions between Parliament, uh, which increasingly saw itself as in opposition to the king on many issues, and the king, uh, who saw Parliament as being in opposition to him on many issues, developed to the point where a civil war emerged. Now, what happened was that there were many, many forces here uh, at work, and uh, not least of which was the military one. And um, the army, the the parliamentary army, was made up of many people, some of whom were wealthy landowners and, if you like, members of the establishment, but many of whom were simply rank-and-file individuals who had no uh, particular interest in the country apart from, you know, whatever work they could get. And when the war was over and won, 
by the parliamentary army, the this lower class body, if you like, was interested in seeing, as it were, what was in in it for them. I mean, they had given their their lives in many cases, and in some cases their health, and they wanted to know how things are going to be different uh, now that the war had been won. And the, so the name Levellers came because uh, their um, their opponents accused them, if you like, of wanting to. Uh, level all of the ranks so that there would be no aristocracy and no wealthy people and all of the rest. Uh, they, for the, for the most part, disclaimed any intention of doing this, but simply said that they were interested in, in getting some form of equality, legal equality, equality before the law. And they had particular proposals they wanted to make and did make um, in the army council, and uh, which were then considered, and they sort of entered into public discourse. So let, let's think about some of the ideas that we would find almost eerily familiar. For example, Richard Overton, one of the better known of these folks, even talks about something like self-ownership long before John Locke does, like preceding him by about 40 years. So how does he conceive of that idea of self-ownership, and to what purpose does he put it? Well, as I said, the the the, um, the level of thought among the uh, no pun intended the level of thought among the levelers was varied. Um, quite interestingly, so many were interested in very concrete things. For example, that members of Parliament should be allocated in some kind of proportionate manner, and that Parliament should sit for limited terms and no longer, so that you wouldn't have Parliament sitting for fifteen or twenty or thirty years at a time. And that matters of religion and public worship shouldn't come within the remit of parliament and that there shouldn't be, if you like, what we would now think of as conscription and that the law should be made for everybody. Now, many of these ideas would seem so obvious to us that we wonder why and how they could be considered to be revolutionary, but they were. And when they were, when the levelers, if you like, were challenged on this matter, they were asked to say, in other words, why, why uh, should these uh, demands be met? They had to think. Okay, and broadly speaking, their their answers came down to two sources. On the one hand, they they simply said they they argued on religious grounds, largely because all human beings are created equal by God. On the other hand, they argued on the basis of some kind of uh, rational processes. And here, uh, to come back specifically to your question, Overton's answer was, I think, perhaps the most philosophically interesting of all. In his piece called "The Arrow Against Self Tyrants," he argued that. To exist is precisely to be the owner of yourself, and nobody can claim, if you like, to dispose of your person uh, without your consent to the extent that anybody can do so. They can only do so because, as it were, you've consented to it in some particular way. And so this idea uh, really is remarkable. It's uh, his, his particular piece, that piece in The Arrow Against uh, All Tyrants, is, uh, is the most remarkable of all the leveler documents. I do want to talk about tyrannicide, definitely a little bit later. Let me say a quick thing about, or why don't you say a quick thing about the name The Levelers, which is confusing. Well, as I said, the name is very often, excuse me, has very often happens in heated political discourse. Uh, you get name calling. <laughs> so people uh, put names on the other side, which they intend to discredit them in the eyes of the general public. Right. So the idea uh, is that this gives the impression that these people just want to level all social distinctions and maybe even all wealth when they protested that they had no such intention. But was it was it really just name calling or, or were any were these people convinced that if you take the levelers ideas to their logical conclusion, they do wind up there? Well, yes. I mean, this again, one of these issues, uh, it would seem that 
I would suspect that of the three sort of major levelers, uh, two of them at least uh, were pro- were probably sincere in their assertions that they had no such intention. It's not so clear that in all the writings of the levelers, levelers however, that that was indeed the case. And in the discussions, uh, I mean, there was a very interesting set of discussions within the Army Council in 1647 at Putney, where the Army commanders, including Cromwell and his son-in-law, Ireton, well-remembered in Ireland, by the way, (laughs) uh, (laughs) were were arguing, if you like, with the representatives of the lower ranks. And Ireton argued um, that if the levellers' uh, demands were taken seriously, uh, then it would, in fact, whether it would, in fact, make it possible for those who had no property to pass laws which disposed of the property uh, of others, and therefore no man's no man's wealth, no man's land, no man's standing, if you like, was safe or secure. And indeed, I mean, our own experience when you think about the way in which democracies work. I don't know who, who it was who said it, that, that no man's property is safe once the legislature is in session. And that, of course, would be a modern expression of the same idea. On the leveler side, on the other hand, they, they were making the point, as not unreasonably, that if laws are going to be made, which affected uh, how they could conduct themselves and what could be done to them, then it was reasonable that they should have some say in who it was was making those laws. And so you had this tension, which is probably irresolvable in the context of the parliamentary democracy. In the so-called Putney debates, were we dealing there just with practical questions of representation, or were there larger natural rights kind of issues emerging there also? Because if, if, if they're debating the ins and outs of representation, I couldn't be less interested. <laughs> well, the, the I'm not quite sure how to answer that particular question. The question of representation was, if you like, common to both sides, all right? The, what, what I'm trying to argue in my chapter here is that the, what was common to both sides is in fact itself problematic and it, what ma- is what makes their discussion, in a sense, irresolvable. Um, on the leveler side, I mean, on the, uh, the, the lower rank side, they were simply saying, look, um, you know, our representatives, whoever they are, are going to make laws that affect our person and our property. And therefore, we have to have some say in who those people are going to be. The the upper ranks of the army, Cromwell and Ireton, were saying, well, hang on a second. If if these people, if you're going to be voting for these people and if they're going to have the, uh, the powers that you're going to give them, then they're going to be able to dispose of our property in various ways. And we won't be able to stop them, if you like, taking our property and using it in any way they choose. And... So on the leveler side, they were arguing both on religious grounds and indeed on natural rights grounds that that something like this would have to come into place, uh, come into um, into existence. On the upper rank side, however, on Cromwell's and Ireton's side, um, they also had a point. In other words, that if you owned property, it seemed unreasonable, if you like, to have somebody uh, which could be elected by people. Uh, uh, chosen by people who had no particular property to lose so that they, those without property could simply uh, have their representatives make decisions about your property, whether you wanted to, whether you wanted them to do so or not. So underlying the, the what seems to be the sort of dry and, and uh, you know, humdrum uh, notion of representation is in fact a whole set of issues having to do with natural law and natural rights, especially in relation to personal, the disposition of your person and indeed your property. Let's go on to the diggers now. These are the people who really 
we might say were levelers in the <laughs> literal sense. Let's talk about who they were. Now, they had very little to no influence. And it's you could say maybe the same thing about the levelers in terms of practical consequences. But what matters really is the development of ideas. And there, the levelers would actually bear quite a bit of fruit. So with the diggers, we're not looking at did they make England into an egalitarian society, but rather what the ideas were. What would, if you were to try to get a, a sense of what they were saying in a practical way, like what would society look like, in other words, if we signed on with the diggers? Okay, the diggers were sometimes uh, called or called themselves the true levelers, obviously, as in distinction from the fake <laughs> levelers whom they uh, argued with. And their idea was much more radical, uh, whereas the levelers protested that they were simply concerned, if you like, with, uh, with an adjustment, if you like, of the political apparatus already in existence. The, the the ideas of the diggers and by the way when we're talking about the diggers we're really and uh, we're really talking about one man that's Jared Winstonley who is really the only sort of intellectual uh, figure in in uh, in this movement who argued really that that what we were talking about wa was if you like an economic solution to the problem that none of the other issues political issues were all supervenient upon some kind of economic reappropriation of the land of England and here his argument was that uh, and this again will will be familiar uh, to libertarians. His argument was that the land of England belonged to everyone in England, and that private property had been, if you like, a, a misappropriation by some few uh, at the expense of the many. Uh, like the Levellers, he tended to go back to the Norman invasion and to say this happened in 1066 when William the Conqueror arrived and claimed all of England for himself and then reapportioned the land to his followers. And that before this time, if you like, there was some sort of quasi-idyllic situation. I'm not sure about the prior idyllic situation, but it's certainly true that this was the legal situation in England, that in other words, the monarch was in fact the owner of all the land and that everybody held their land from him. And so the diggers, the idea of the diggers was that, that you couldn't be free uh, and uh, still less survive unless you had some access to the basic uh, root of all wealth, which was in fact land. And therefore, they began at the very least by saying that they should have access uh, to the commons, uh, which was land, if you like, that didn't belong to any one person in particular, but uh, but was, if you like, in at least in principle available to anyone with certain restrictions who wanted to make use of it. All right. I actually want to move on beyond the diggers. I'm interested, given that we talked about uh, tyrants and, and fighting against them. Let's talk about this interesting figure, Edward Sexby. Now, it's not to say that there hadn't been other people who had called for the possibility of uh, tyrannicide. Certainly the um, late scholastics had envisioned that, for example. But um, what's his work and what's his significance? Well, I, I came across this quite by accident. I had no sort of prior knowledge of this before I started my research. And when I read it, my eyes sort of popped out of my head. This was a, uh, a fairly savage polemical piece and also highly satirical. It's actually very funny. Um, enough, obviously. It wouldn't be very funny for Cromwell, <laughs> against whom it was directed. But it would have been uh, read. Uh, it, obviously, there's a tongue firmly in cheek here. But anyway... Uh, Sexby is it, it, the title of his piece is called "Killing No Murder," and he's arguing that if you kill somebody who's a tyrant, it's not in fact a, a criminal act. It's it's obviously homicide because you're killing a human being, but it's not murder because the person you're killing, if you like, has no right 
to be doing what he's doing and to you are in fact engaging in a form of resistance or self-defense. And so the question then is, uh, is Cromwell a tyrant? And Sexby goes through the various conditions uh, that uh, you have to meet in order to be a tyrant and he concludes he is. An important distinction, by the way, that almost everybody who argues for tyrannicide makes is between two types of tyrant. The one is somebody who, without any justification or any prior uh, justification, seizes power and exercises it over people without any shred of justification at all. And the other is where you had somebody who was, in some sense, legitimate, a legitimate ruler who begins to act in ways that go beyond uh, his legitimate powers. The second one is somebody is a tyrannous exarchitia, in other words, somebody who becomes a tyrant by, by his actions. And the other one is called a tyrannous sine titulu, which means uh, somebody who is a tyrant without any claim uh, uh, to legitimacy. And so Sexby argues that uh, Cromwell is in fact a tyrannous sine titulo. And here, uh, almost all of those people who argue for tyrannicide over the ages have argued, have justified the... Um, the correctness, it might not be expedient, but at least the, 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 the moral correctness of assassinating or killing somebody who is a tyrant of this kind. Yeah, that is, a, that is quite a stunning work, especially for that time. To us, we think, ah, big deal, of course you can go after a tyrant, but that's <laughs> a, it's quite a big step to take to begin to th- yeah. think that way. Uh, here, but here's another guy I want to talk about, because I was very interested that you, you covered him. Sir Robert Filmer. Yes. Now, if you've heard of Sir Robert Filmer, all you know about him generally is that the reason we don't generally read John Locke's first treatise on government is that he spends it refuting the village idiot, as you satirically call him, uh, Sir Robert Filmer, and it's of no significance to us today, and Filmer was an idiot, so there's no point in looking at it. So unless you're just a historian of the period, you wouldn't even bother with that work, and that's pretty much everybody's knowledge of Sir Robert Filmer. It doesn't mean we have to love him, but what's the truth of the matter about him? And did he, in fact, have any insights that were, are worth gleaning today? Oh, yes. I mean, I, I think Filmer is a uh, is a really significant figure, not just historically, but in fact, theoretically. And I'm not alone in thinking this, by the way. George Smith thinks the same. Um, so if you think about it, he had a positive and a, neg- and a kind of critical argument. His positive argument is generally dismissed out of hand, and more or less correctly so. Here he, he, um, he made use of the idea that political authority is simply a form of paternal authority. And he argued on the basis of biblical evidence, as he sought, I would think inappropriately anyway, that uh, kings, if you like, um, are sort of de facto fathers to their subjects, and therefore they have a kind of parental authority. So Locke, for example, had no difficulty whatsoever in knocking this particular uh, argument down. It's, it's, it's really insubstantial. But much more significant, however, was Filmer's uh, critical analysis, his argument that he, he argued that any theory of political authority that relies on the notion of contract or consent invariably leads to anarchy. Right. And since obviously for Filmer, anarchy is eminently undesirable, so too is the theory of consent that leads to it. He points out, by the way, that as a matter of historical fact, a point that was later made by Hume, there's no record of any government ever beginning by consent. And even if 
despite you know difficulties which would amount almost to an impossibility, everybody was to agree at a particular moment, why should the consent of new additions to the population not be required at another time? This, of course, this idea would be very familiar to anybody who's read um, what's her, our 19th century American. Uh, I can't think of his name for the moment. It's just gone. Um, so he also attacks the idea that all men are by nature free and equal because he argues that if this were so, then people would have the right to resist their rulers. And once again, government would become impossible. And that, of course, is um, a reductio ad absurdum for Filmer. So if if we had natural freedom and equality, it wouldn't be possible for any government to get started or if some by some miracle it were to have been started to be maintained. Um, and therefore, he argues that uh, this that there's that those people like Locke, for example, or anybody else who argues for the natural freedom and equality, and this would obviously apply to the levelers and the diggers as well, apply for, who uh, who argue for the natural equality uh, of individual human beings, must, if you like, be prepared to accept that that leads straight to the justification of anarchy. Now, of course, for somebody like me, <laughs> that's not a problem. Okay, I would say fine. I think that's correct. So I think Filmer's arguments are, in fact, and in, he doesn't intend them in this particular way. He intends to show just how ridiculous this argument is. In other words, how ridiculous the assumption of natural equality is, because it leads to anarchy. But for somebody like a libertarian anarchist like me, I would say absolutely correct. You are right. You have done what most people fail to do. Most people who who, uh, who don't think sufficiently through the implications of the natural freedom and equality of human beings. And ask themselves, what would that what would that lead to in the end? And so I think Filmer's arguments, his destructive arguments, his critical arguments, are in fact devastating. Is the 19th century American figure you had in mind Orestes Brownson by any chance? No, I, I was thinking of Lysander Spooner. The name just came oh, to me. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Because Brownson, even though he was more of a conservative than a libertarian, has some really good arguments against social contract theories of government. Yeah, and, I actually wasn't thinking of Brownson, but yeah, that, yes. Yeah, and, and, and some of them are just practical things. He says, all these governments claim the power of eminent domain, and they, but at the same time, they claim that they get their powers from people delegating their, their own individual powers to the government. But none of us as an individual has a power to, of eminent domain. So they, they're not even, they can't be taken seriously, these people. It's, <laughs> it seems like when I, we look through the levelers, the diggers who were quite radical, then we look at Sexby and then Filmer, they're all over the place ideologically. It is an incredibly motley brew of ideas that was born during this time. And in that spirit, tell us a little bit about who James Harrington was. Well, uh, yeah, Harrington again is one of these people that that you that you know most people are very unlikely to come up against. Uh, and he doesn't really have the same sort of name recognition as Hobbes would. I mean, most people would have heard of Hobbes or Locke, even if they haven't actually read them. But if you said James Harrington, most people would say, who? What? <laughs> right? And so what happened was that after, in other words, when, when the battle between Parliament and the King had been settled uh, and, the, and the, the army found itself victorious, you, you then had a what now moment. Because you know, all of their energy and all of their uh, attention was focused on, if you like, winning the war. But when they found themselves having won the war, the question was, what do we do now? And that's, of course, when, as we discussed earlier, you had the Putney debates between, if you like, the, the senior officers and the junior officers and, and the other ranks uh, in the parliamentary army. So in a way, they found themselves tr having to try to figure out 
what kind of theory will fit the new situation. So Harrington's uh, immediate influence in practical terms was negligible, but he gave two really important ideas to the the debate of the in the, the the Republican, not in the American Central Republican, but the, the Republican debate. The first was a really important idea, and of course it was to come up again two hundred years later. Was that the structure of a government is determined by what he called the balance of dominion in the foundation, which is by whom and by how many of the material resources in a given state were controlled. So this is the first kind of materialist theory. Uh, of government we uh, we actually find. He wasn't just concerned about ideas of freedom or liberty or anything like this, important though they were. He was saying, look, in the end, if you want to figure out who controls what or who makes the decisions, you need to look to see who owns the property, okay? Because in the end, those people who control the property are the people who are going to have the power to make dispositions in every other area. And the second idea that he contributed was that Again, this now this would be commonplace today, which is that whatever solution you had to the political problems of the time, it would have to be located in a government of laws rather than a government of men. So it couldn't be simply fixated on a particular person like uh, such as the king. So he is the, if you like, the, he is the first person to put forward the idea that the material economic and social realities couldn't simply be molded uh, simply by ideas. They, they had, as it were, a power of their own. Now, to anybody with any sort of historical sensitivity, you immediately start thinking Karl Marx, right? And uh, of course, there are elements of truth. Even Marx can't get everything completely wrong all the time, okay? And it is true, but and it's interesting, if you like, the 200 years before Marx, Harrington was the one, the first one, I think, there may be earlier ones, but I haven't found them, to grasp the idea that the material conditions of of production or ownership, if you like, he, he thought played a determining factor. You don't necessarily have to go that far. It certainly would play, a, would be a large constitutive factor in the mode of political organization of any society. All right. You know, the last few times I've had you on, I've kept you later with no additional compensation. You don't get paid overtime on the Tom Wood show. <laughs> so I might let you run a little early, particularly because we're going to see you a little bit later today, although by the time people hear this, it'll be over. But you're doing a live Q&A session over at libertyclassroom.com for our members there, and people are going to be able to ask you questions in real time with you on the screen. So um, I'll let you go rest up for that. But in the meantime, folks, a couple things to tell you about Professor Casey. The first, of course, is that he is a faculty member over at libertyclassroom.com. You can take his course on courses on the history of political thought and on logic. But also, you want to get his book, Freedom's Progress, A History of Political Thought. It is an astonishing book. It's, it's a tremendously interesting book. It's a huge book. So even if it is more expensive than your run-of-the-mill book, it's giving you the punch of four run-of-the-mill books in terms of the sheer amount of stuff in it, the entertainment value, the educational value. It is an indispensable volume on that shelf of yours. So check that out. We'll link to it at tomwoods.com slash 1083. Thank you, Professor Casey. Thank you, Tom. All right, a quick announcement in case you're not on my email list. Uh, you may not, uh, in that case, you may not know about this, but on February 28th of this year, that's 2018, I'm going to be speaking at the University of California at Santa Barbara. I don't do as much public speaking as I used to, so this is a rarity. So if you live in that area, I would love to meet you. I will have logistical details in the coming weeks, but at least for now, save the date, February 28th. I'll be there, University of California at Santa Barbara. 
And uh, if you don't hear the details from me, either through my newsletter or website or the show, then you can always get them when they are available at tomwoods.com slash events. Thanks for listening. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.